John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Where do we find our hope and our peace? It is only in Christ. It is in Him. If you look for it in anything else, it will not sustain you. Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. We believe that God has perfectly revealed Himself through Scripture alone. And that salvation comes by grace alone, from faith alone, in Christ alone. That everything is for the glory of God alone. So as we study God's unchanging, inerrant word together, ask God to open your eyes. To open your eyes to see yourself and your own sin clearly. Open your eyes to see Jesus clearly. And pray that God would give you the grace to repent, to turn from your sin, and the faith to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you'd like more information, go to our website at edenworshipcenter.co. Well, open with me, if you would, Acts chapter 24. We read a portion of it earlier, but I want to do something a little bit different than we normally do. I want us to actually just read together the entire chapter. Uh, The words are not going to be on the screen. We want you to read them out of your Bible, out of that that precious book that you hold in your hand, whether it is paper or digital form, that men and women throughout the centuries have given their lives for. So we're going to read Acts chapter 24. You may have a different translation, but I'm sure you can follow along. Beginning in verse 1, After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullius, and they laid before the governor their case against Paul. When he had been summoned, Tertullius began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy such peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for the nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, and who was a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. When the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I came up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and men. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to the nation and to present offerings. And while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. And some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and make an accusation, should they have anything against me. 
or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they have found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial this day before you. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysus, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. And then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he had hoped that money would be given to him by Paul, and so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Lord, I pray that the hearts of your people would be stirred and moved and strengthened and changed by your word. Lord, I come humbly before you confessing, God, I do not have the power of intellect or persuasion to have my words change anyone's heart in the course of eternity. So I pray, oh God, would you let what your word alone can do, would you penetrate the hearts of men and women? Would you cause them, cause them, oh God, to be made sons and daughters of the King of kings and Lord of lords? Lord, would you call their name, as we prayed for their children, we now pray for them, would you call their name and make them your own? Let your word be living and active among us. Let the name of Jesus be exalted both here and to the farthest regions of this earth. We pray, oh God, for the sake of your kingdom. Amen. Well, David Sitton, founder of To Every Tribe, where Destin and Jen have spent the last two years, asked the question, as we go to the nations to make his name known, will we do it with reckless abandon or will we do it with reasonable risk? If you're just joining us, if you open up your bulletin, inside of there are some notes that you can follow along. In fact, there's some fill-in-the-blanks just to make sure that you stay awake with us. And these are the first two that are in there. When we take the gospel outside of the four walls of this building, will we do it with reckless abandon or will we do it with reasonable risk? And I would suggest to us that most of the time, our Sharing of the gospel, our taking of the gospel, our consideration of that for our lives is measured by reasonable risk. What's going to work out best for me? What's going to be the path of least resistance? Again, if you're just joining us, Paul has been preaching Christ to those who have not heard of him, to Jews and to Gentiles. He's been planting churches, he's been making disciples, and he's been paying the price in persecution from town to town. He has not taken the path of least resistance. And the Holy Spirit from town to town has warned him that trouble and problems and persecution are coming. And now he stands in court being slandered, lied about. And yet we know Paul's life theme that we read a few weeks ago back in Acts chapter 20, verses 22 to 24. He says, and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem. Knowing all this was waiting for him. I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy, Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city, 
that imprisonment and afflictions await me. I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. The ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, and here it is, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now he stands in court. Having been faithful, having testified to the grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ, he stands with false accusations that come with very real consequences. They're false accusations. Most of what is being said about him is not true, but the consequences of making these accusations are very, very real. So let's look first at what they said. What were these accusations? Look again at Acts chapter 24, verses 5 and 6. For we have found this man a plague. Christian, may I challenge you. May your sharing of the gospel, may the testimony of your life be a plague to the non-Christian world. Oh, consider that for just a moment. Consider that in opposition to how we generally live in quiet, invisible comfort, just hoping that the world around us, especially the godless around us, will take no notice of us, that we can just live quiet, peacefully, away from everything else. May our proclamation of the gospel be a plague to those who are anti-Christ. We have found this man a plague who stirs up. Now, don't stir up riots, all right? Can we be clear on that, right? Don't say awe. No, you're not allowed to stir up riots. This is a false accusation, by the way. One who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. He's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes and even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. First off, the first charge is this man stirs up riots among Jews everywhere that he goes. Now, if you remember, this is in the setting of the Roman Empire ruling over in subjection to uh, all of the Jews in Jerusalem. So the Jews are living under the authority of Rome. And Rome brought with it, if you remember from high school, Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. It was a, a worldwide peace that enabled things like roads to be built uh, to most cities, connecting all these people, uh, for clean waterways to be built, uh, all kinds of good government replacing unjust governments that were there. In fact, government that most of what our legal system today is built on, the Roman precedent. Except here's the problem. When you're going to conquer people and then enforce your peace upon them, they were constantly being met with rebellion and uprisings. And so the only way to deal with that is to answer swiftly with crushing force and restore peace. If things escalated to the point where entire cities were allowed to fall into full riot, or even worse, multiple cities catching on fire, would be almost impossible to contain and control. So to the Romans, this first charge is the most serious. In fact, that's why this first charge comes with a death sentence. If Paul is guilty of inciting riots and social unrest, it is worthy of death. The second charge that the Jews bring against him is this man is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Nazarenes was a way of referring to the followers of Jesus of Nazareth. So Nazarenes, you also see in the same passage using the phrase, the way. So there's, they're not talking about the denomination of the Nazarenes. This is just a way of referring to those who follow Jesus of Nazareth. And here was their thought. In fact, this had been the Jewish thought and the Roman thought 
for a couple hundred years in this region is as rebellions come up, as ringleaders come up, what we do is we chop off the head. If we can take out the leader, then the rest of it will very quickly disperse. That's what they had done. It had worked for them before. That's what they believed they had done with Jesus, and now they're doing it with Jesus' immediate followers and disciples. Now, for most of us sitting in 2019, in the middle of nowhere, Indiana, it can be really easy for us to look at this and go, what was the big deal? Like, starting a riot, I get it, that's a big problem, but what's the big deal with, he's the head of, you know, some religious sect over here? Well, I want you to put this in context for a moment of how you think about cult leaders. It's been more than 25 years since David Koresh was the head of the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas, but how many of you clearly remember him? Yeah. If you don't, it's probably because you're a child. So look him up on the Google machine after we're done here. Uh, The problem is when we hear of cult leaders, cult leaders who are perverting the truth and drawing people in, we actually have a giant problem with that. This wasn't just the Jewish religious leaders where we look at them and we shake their heads. No, we have a gigantic problem with that. There's a stigma that gets attached to that. That's what they were attaching to Paul. And here's their third charge, is this leader who has been perverting the truth, who is twisting and drawing people away to himself, he also is trying to draw that into our place of worship, and he tried to profane the temple. Now, this one, again, was just not true. But if you remember, back from Acts chapter 21, verse 29, it said they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. If you remember when we talked early in the chapters of Acts that there was a restriction of who could enter the inner courts of the temple. And anyone who was not a Jewish male, there were actually signs over all the doors that said, if you enter, your death is on your own head. And they're, they're assuming, because we saw him with this Ephesian, this Gentile in the city, that he probably tried to sneak him into the temple. Here's the irony in these charges. The irony is that those who have accused Paul of stirring up riots, of social unrest, in reality, that is the group of Jewish leaders. It was only the ones who had followed him from Asia. That's the only way they knew who Trophimus was. It was them who were stirring up riots. It was them who stirred up unrest. They had done it with Paul in Asia. If you remember, he was in those cities in Asia, and riots were getting stirred up. He gets stoned and dragged out of the city in one. There's threats of riots, and they have to escape at night, and now it follows him into the temple in Jerusalem, but he's not the culprit. They are the ones who were doing it, which is why I love, look, look at verse 18 in chapter 24. I love that we get this glimpse into this courtroom scene. I also thought it was fantastic that we had a lawyer reading the courtroom scene for us a little bit ago. But you get this glimpse. There's a couple glimpses in here of eyewitness accounts of what's going on. First off, we see in, I believe it's verse 10, where it says that he nods to him to begin to speak. That tells us Luke was in the room. Luke, the author of the book of Acts and the book of Luke, he witnessed this happening. He saw him nod. Here's the second one in verse 18. We get an interrupted sentence from Paul. Paul, in the middle of making his defense, saying, you know what, it wasn't me stirring up these things. It was these Jewish men who had followed me from Asia. And he says in verse 18, but some Jews from Asia, and then he catches his thought. Actually, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation 
if they should have anything against me. It occurs to him, it's not my job to make the case. One of the great devotionals that is coming this week for you, if you get the household worship guide, is, uh, I forget what you called it, nothing but butter, I think. The idea that the Jews had no case against him, so all they do is just butter up Felix. That's all they had, and then they said, well, just talk to him. He'll sort it out. Paul's like, I shouldn't have to make that case. If those Jewish believers or Jewish unbelievers from Asia want to accuse me of something, they should be here themselves. The truth is that they had made assumptions about Paul breaking with tradition and the law without ever bothering to listen to him. They would ask questions but not bother to listen without bothering to give him a fair trial, and they are ready to accuse and condemn Paul. Christian, I want to challenge you this morning, and Destin and Jen, I'm going to have several thoughts that are kind of geared towards you this morning. If we are going to live life on mission, if we are going to testify, as Paul said, this is my life goal, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God, it will bring with it misunderstanding. It will bring with it false accusations. It will bring with it true accusations. Sometimes we get all bent out of shape about the false accusations and we forget that some of what they accused Paul of was true and some of what they're going to accuse you of is true. The fact is the gospel is offensive to those who reject Christ. It will bring with it slander and gossip and pain and rejection. And Jesus told his disciples the exact same thing. John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says, I have told you these things. This is another one of the fill in the blanks in your bulletin. So that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Where do we find our hope and our peace? It is only in Christ. That's why I wanted you to write those words down. It is in Him. If you look for it in anything else, it will not sustain you. Destined and Jen, as you serve the Lord and testify to the gospel of the grace of God, you will be disappointed in people. In fact, it's the very people you are investing your lives in. The very people for which you're going to kiss your family goodbye and go to a foreign land to serve those people. Those same people will reject the gospel and they will reject you. But there are some. There are some who will hear. There are some who God has given ears to hear the gospel, and it is worth it. And so, never set your hope. This is not just for Destin and Jen. This is for you. Because you can go to work tomorrow morning and have that person that you want to share the gospel with. You just go, I'm not sure it's worth it because I think they're just going to reject me. They're going to reject the gospel. It's better just to keep my mouth shut. Listen, Christian, never set your hope your measure of success or your peace in people or results. Instead, anchor it in the unchanging rock of Jesus Christ and take heart, for he has overcome the world. This is an unshakable kingdom. This is an unstoppable mission we have been given. Those are the accusations. What was Paul actually doing? If you remember all the way back from Acts chapter 9, Jesus had promised this to Paul. When he arrests him on that road, Acts chapter 9, verse 1, tells us that Paul, who was back then known as Saul, was breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. By the way, that's the exact same thing that those who stand accusing him now are doing. He was in the same place that they stood. 
Oh, these followers of Jesus. He was breathing out murderous threats against them. 25 years later. This is the same place that you and I and everyone starts out in relationship to Christ. We, we don't start out with a good heart. We don't start out with a natural disposition towards God and towards the gospel. Our hearts are filled with enmity towards God. That's why those who reject Christ, those who are anti-Christ, will never receive the gospel no matter how we package it in a Sunday morning with lights and smoke machines and a slide that gets you to Sunday school class. They will reject the gospel because they have rejected God. We start out as an enemy of him, but oh, Christian, listen to the good news. Colossians chapter 1, 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Romans 8, chapter, 7, uh, chapter 8, verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh, the, the NIV there says that is governed by the flesh, is hostile towards God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. That means we should get a little less bent out of shape when non-Christians act like non-Christians. Our hope is not found in the fact that we live in a Christian nation. Our hope is found that we have a God who is sovereign over every nation. That's where Paul was. That's where you and I are before Christ, but God. But God arrested Saul on that road to Damascus and commissioned him. And this was not a soft commission. It is not a soft commission for Destin and Jen this morning. It is not a soft or safe commission for you this morning. Listen to the words that Jesus told Ananias to go and pray for Saul, this dangerous, reckless convert who he was not sure if he could trust. Acts chapter 9, verse 15, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he will suffer for the sake of my name. Paul's commissioning from day one was not an easy gospel. It was not every day of Friday filled with glory, hallelujah. No, he was called and commissioned to suffer for the sake of the gospel and to carry the name. Sort of a strange way to say it. We, we don't talk about that very often in our day-to-day lives, especially outside of a church context. What does he mean there by carry my name? Carry the fullness of the understanding of a creator God, of a sovereign ruler who rules nations, of a king of righteousness. And while nations who are under him are filled with unrighteousness, rightfully storing up wrath from a good and rightful judge who judges nations and judges individual peoples. Yet the God who is being proclaimed did not leave this fallen humanity helpless, but condescended. He came down. He put on flesh in Christ Jesus as the eternal divine spirit and the flesh of humanity were mysteriously united in Christ, who lived in sinless perfection, who preached faith and righteousness, who died as a substitute, who was resurrected, giving us new life, who was raised to the right hand of the Father, opening up a way to the Father for all those who would put their trust in Christ. That is the name. In effect, it is the gospel that Paul was commissioned to take, the fullness of who God is and what God has done. That was Paul's commission. That is Destin and Jen's commission. And church, that is our commission. 
The question we should ask ourselves is, is it worth it? Was it worth it for Paul? Is it worth it to send off Destin and Jen? Is it worth it for you to carry the gospel, the name of the Almighty God, giving time and effort and spending your life for people who need to hear, but most of them will not receive it with joy? In fact, most will reject and ridicule and accuse and even persecute. This is why most of us don't give our lives for the sake of the gospel to Christian service. It's outside of our comfort zone. It's outside of what we believe is best and easiest for our life. So the question is, is sharing the gospel really worth the great cost that comes attached to it? This is in your bulletin. Yes. Yes. Jesus is worth it. Is Jesus worth surrendering your life? Yes. Is Jesus worth surrendering your children for the sake of the gospel? Yes. Is he worth surrendering your comfortable middle-class house? Yes. Your comfort? Yes. All that you have, because he has given all of that to you. That's where Paul stands as he makes his defense. Look again in Acts chapter 24, verses 10 through 13. When the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. He could say that not because Felix was a good judge, but because his hope was in the judge of all nations, the king of all kings, who had promised that he was sending Paul to Rome, and he knew no matter what this king says, I am in the king of kings' hands. You can verify that it's not more than 12 days since I came to worship in Jerusalem. They did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. I was not a troublemaker, Paul essentially says. I was not stirring up crowds anywhere. I was not stirring them up on my missionary journeys. I have not been doing it, certainly not in Jerusalem. I've only been here 12 days. Now, I've never put together a riot myself, but I think it it takes a little more time and preparation, especially if he's going through at least a week-long purification ritual. He says, I haven't been here long enough. Now, here's where I think you and I would deviate with Paul just a little bit. See, Paul stands putting his life and his hope securely in the hands of a sovereign God who rules kings and nations, and yet you and I find ourselves in much lesser situations, and we immediately find ourselves furious. If I had stood in Paul's shoes, I would have been furious with the Jews. I'd have been furious with a legal system that was failing. You could even find yourself furious with God. How often are we tempted to be fixated on how I have been wronged? We lose sight of God's sovereign plan for my life, God's sovereign plan for the nations, and all I can think about is, what has this person done to me? And we mull it over and we mull it over. In fact, some of you are still carrying around today things that happened back when you were in high school. That teacher who said something to you, that coach who treated you or mistreated you, or maybe just missed you altogether, and you look back and you go, I was wronged. And then we feel self-righteous. We feel justified in our anger. We don't see any of that in Paul. Paul could have been furious, but instead 
He viewed this, and by the way, every other moment like it as an opportunity for the gospel. An opportunity given him by the good and sovereign king of all things. That not one second of his life was outside of God's sovereign, loving control. And so not one second needed to be spent in worry and anxiety. Think with me for just a second. Paul has said, you remember a few weeks ago we read, he, he's saying goodbye to the, the elders in Ephesus and they kneel down. They weep together. They pray God's blessing over him. And he says, I'm going to Jerusalem that I might go to Rome. I'm not going to see your face again. And he gets hijacked while he's in Jerusalem. And the end of this passage told us he's going to spend the next two years as a prisoner, not anywhere near Rome. Just think about that. Think about how Quickly, we get blown out of the water when somebody misses us for two weeks. Man, I worked so hard and that boss never noticed. You want to take it one step worse. My kid's been trying so hard and that coach just doesn't see it. I'm not sure it's worth sticking out the rest of the season. Paul's going to spend two years in prison. And in that time, he is going to be incredibly fruitful for the gospel. He's going to be writing, he's going to be preaching, he's going to be sharing the gospel with those, even those who are holding him, because he believed not one second of that was outside of a good, sovereign God's hand and control. Here's what he says in response to that. Here's the big issue. Here's what brought me here. Here's what motivates me to speak up when keeping quiet would be easier and safer. Chapter 24, verse 21, he says, It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Remember, we talked about uh, him before the Sanhedrin with the, the Sadducees who do not believe in the resurrection, the Pharisees who do believe in the resurrection. He sort of plays a political card down the middle. But I think this is more than that. I think he's saying there, there is a reality here that is driving me, that is true whether you believe it or not. This world is not the end. If it were, we could just disagree and happily go on our way. So what? Because when you die, it's over. And Paul says, no, there will come a day. Paul's going to go on to write this in 2 Corinthians 5.10, when we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us, the things done in the body, whether good or bad. And Paul says this is what matters most. You will stand before God, and either the full weight of God's wrath for your sins will be poured out on you. That's one of the fill-in-the-blanks in your bulletin. God's wrath will be poured out upon you for all eternity. And by the way, God's wrath poured on you for all eternity is still not enough to pay for your sin. There's no point where you hit eternity plus one and God says, all right, you've done enough, now enter into the kingdom. No, for all eternity, the wrath of God will be perfectly holy, righteous, poured out upon you or upon Christ, the perfect sacrifice once and for all. That's what drove Paul. That's what motivated him. Therefore, he says in 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified. 
Because people love hearing it. And, and if I preach Christ crucified, my podcast will just grow and people will watch the live stream and my ministry will increase exponentially. No, he says, we preach Christ crucified knowing it's a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. This is not how you build a big mega church. This is how you build a faithful church. Christ crucified, the, the gospel clearly proclaimed. I love this. Here we, we get this glimpse into this is actually true. This is actually what Paul is staking his life and his eternity on. Look at verse 24 and 25. After some days, he makes this defense, and then they send him away, and they bring him back again. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent Paul and heard from him, speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And he reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment. And Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summons you. We so often focus on Felix wanting a bribe. That he sends him away and brings him back, sends him away and brings him back because he wanted a bribe. And I'm not sure I've ever seen before that he was alarmed. That Felix was disturbed. That there was something in the gospel that Paul preached as he was declaring, this is what it looks like to stand before God. This is what righteousness looks like. This is where we are lacking in righteousness. The self-control that we are lacking and the coming judgment that unnerved him. The Bible tells us in verse 25 that Paul reasoned with Felix and his wife Drusilla. The word literally means to mingle thought for thought. This was a, a back-and-forth reasoning to discuss and to preach. And this goes on for two years. Christian, think with me for a second. How frequently do we say, I, I think this is what God wants for my life. I, I'm going to do the best I can to be faithful and follow after God's leading. And then when it doesn't work out two months later, then we lose hope and we, we become despondent. We say, I, I'm not sure this is worth it anymore. For two years, Paul is faithful. He is preaching again and again to a man that the Bible never tells us was converted. Paul doesn't go and begin making a defense. Listen, these Jews have a vendetta against me. This was false accusation. Give me enough time and I can lay out how every part of their case is false. He doesn't do that. He preaches Christ. How often when you and I find ourselves in difficult situations do we begin making our own defense and we fail to preach Christ at all? We fail to see this as an opportunity for the gospel. Here's what we should see in this. There's no formula for instant success. There isn't. Just a clear, consistent declaration of the gospel. That's Paul's charge. That's our charge. Worship team, if you guys would make your way up. I want to ask us a question this morning. Because I believe it's dangerous. I believe it's dangerous to gather on a Sunday morning with people that we routinely see gathering on a Sunday morning and make the assumption that everybody in the room is actually a Christian. 
See, our world is filled with people preaching a gospel message that leads to a giant emotional response. And, And then we quickly call them up and we have them pray a prayer. And we say, you're officially in because of this response that you had in this moment. And if we look down the history of the rest of their life, we don't see any fruit of the gospel in their life. There's no repentance. There's no self-sacrifice. There's no trusting in Christ. In fact, we see only the opposite, and then we can't figure out why these Christians never get their life together. I want to suggest that for some people in this room, there's a chance you're not a Christian. Now, I'm not pointing my finger at you. I'm just saying, ask yourself that question. Maybe you grew up going to church. That does not make you a Christian. Maybe you believe the Bible is true and good. That doesn't make you a Christian. Maybe you actually believe that Jesus Christ came to earth and died on a cross and probably rose again. That does not make you a Christian. Being a Christian only happens when God sovereignly calls your name and you respond and put all of your hope and your trust in him because of the evidence we see in Scripture, not because of the emotional response you're having in your heart. See, we can have all kinds of emotional responses. Those of you with children know this is true. You come home, and your child has done something that they knew was wrong, and they have a very emotional response when they meet you at the door. I am so sorry. Right, the tears are flowing. I promise I will never do this again. Only the problem is they have a fear of punishment. There has been no change of heart. Are you tracking with me? Here's how you find this out. Do they keep doing the exact same thing over and over and over and over? If they do, we can look back at the tears at the door and say, that was not real. It was a very real fear of punishment. There was no real change. Oh, Christian, I fear that is true for so many who sit in pews and seats in churches today. Oh, would you examine yourself this morning? Have I trusted Christ? Or is the fruit of my life everything but dependence upon him? Maybe you sit here this morning and go, I have trusted in Christ. Here's my question. As you are walking that out, are you currently trusting in Christ? Or have you begun trusting only in yourself? Only in other people. And here's how you know that's true. When they let you down, you are blown out of the water. When things don't go your way, you lose your mind. Because your hope is not set on the sovereign God of all nations. Your hope is set in yourself. You are trusting in yourself. What's the fruit of your life? Is it hope and joy and rest? Or is it frustration, anxiety, and anger? Oh, if it's any of those things, repent this morning. Turn to him. Beg him to save you. We would love to sit down and walk through this with you. In fact, back there in that back corner, right on the the edges, you're going out that door, there's a whole bunch of papers that just say the gospel on it. I actually think this is way more helpful than somebody who you're trying to lead to the Lord. And so you say, would you quick repeat this prayer after me? This begins to walk them through Scripture after Scripture about what it means to be rightfully under the wrath of God. What it means for our hearts to be separated from God. What it meant for Christ to be the substitute in our place. What it means to put your hope and your trust in Him. If you are in any doubt this morning, here's what I do not want to do. Beat you up and say you're not in the club. Here's what I want to beg you to do. Grab one of those. Go home. Don't do anything else. Get on your knees before God and read every one of those scriptures. Pray every one of those scriptures until you know that Christ has made you his own. 
Maybe this morning you know Christ has made you his own. You are walking with him. My question is, are you going to your world with the gospel? Oh, it's so easy to say, well, I can't go to the world with the gospel. I I support missionaries. I'm supporting Destin and Jen as they go. I I, I support, I pray for other missionaries. My my job is to stay here and to make that happen. Okay, that's, that's fantastic. But are you going to your world? See, God has surrounded you with a world around you, filled with unbelievers, filled with scoffers. Are you taking the gospel to them? Or are you silently trying to go unnoticed through the sea of those who reject Christ? See, it doesn't actually start with foreign missions. It starts by sharing the gospel at home. If you want a good measure of this, we talk about what really matters to us. What we are meditating on in our heart will come out of your mouth. If it's the latest Netflix series you've been watching, you talk about it with your friends. If it's your favorite podcast, you talk about it with your friends. If it's whatever's going on in politics, you talk about it with your friends. If it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, you talk about it with your friends. Oh, Christian, what do you talk about? What is coming out of your mouth reveals what is actually in your heart. When our trust for salvation shifts to our ability to convince someone my ability to say all the right words in all the right time, then I can never know enough. I'm not smart enough. I can't memorize enough. And who cares? They aren't going to hear it anyway. It won't work. That is equal to me trusting in myself for their salvation. Here's good news. The good news is that I can't convince anybody. You can't convince anybody. You'll never be smart enough. You'll never memorize enough scripture As we share with them good news, it's not just good news because it will give them a better life. That's what most testimonies that we hear today are. Oh, my life was so bad, and then I finally found Jesus, and now my life is so much better. Don't you want your life to be better? Come to Jesus. If you're just smart enough to figure it out, like me. No, it's good news because God has chosen to glorify his Son as Savior by making dead hearts come alive. I was dead in my sin. I didn't want any part of it, and God made me alive. Go back and read Ephesians chapter 2. as That is declared over and over. We were dead in our sin. We were hostile towards him, and God made me alive. That's the testimony that we share. That's the gospel that we proclaim. That is the only place that we find our hope. Which is why week after week, as we wrap up our service, we take communion together, reminding ourselves that our salvation doesn't come through our own strength or effort. It is through the body that was broken on the cross for us. It is through Jesus' blood that was shed for us, that wipes away, that forgives us all of our sins. Which is why I want to stop and ask you now, are you trusting in Christ? Please don't come to the table if you're not trusting in Christ. If you're saying, you know what, I don't actually need this God thing to work. Uh, I don't mind showing up every once in a while on a Sunday, but practical in my life, I think I've got it. I would say, please don't come. Please don't come because you are yet trusting in yourself. And we're told in 1 Corinthians 11 that it is dangerous to come to the table not trusting in Christ. Oh, this morning, I I would beg you to do the opposite, to sit here and say, oh God, where am I not trusting in you? And then repent of that. Would you stand together with me?
I want to give us a moment to examine our hearts before the Lord. We have an open communion here. You don't have to be a member to take communion. There's wine on your left and juice on your right. You can go to whichever side you want. We'll come down the aisles, make your way back around the outside, and we'll take the elements together in just a bit. But I want you to just stand before the Lord. Again, this this isn't summed up by us calling you to the altar and and having you pray a few tears and us pray for you and say, there, we, we fixed it. This happens when Christians day after day after day get on their knees before God and say, God, make me your own. God, do not let go of me until I believe this in an unshakable way. No matter what the world and hell throws against me, I put my trust in Jesus Christ. Would you just bow your head and ask that of the sovereign Savior this morning? before you that our hope is not found in ourselves. Our hope is found in the God who holds us in the palm of his hand. Lord, as we come to your table, Lord, we come putting all of our hope and our trust in the power of Jesus Christ to save. 